you can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it is good to call you our Father. It's good to know you as our Father. It's good to know your fatherly care over us. As the Father shows compassion on his children, so you, the Lord, show compassion on your children. Thank you for the compassion you've shown to us in our sin, to redeem us, to rescue us, to deliver us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the truth of our justification. We are declared right in your sight through the work of Jesus, your Son. We thank you for this good news, and we pray that you would let it find its way deep in our hearts, that we might be changed by its power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so, Lord, let that power reside in us and change us, mold us and shape us into your children, to people who follow you and people who glorify you. Lord, I need you in this moment. I need you in my one defense, my righteousness. If ever I needed you, Lord, it's now. We need you as a people. So, Lord, we ask you for your help. We are dependent and desperate for your help. We need you. Every hour we need you. And as I prayed at the beginning of the series on the book of Romans, I don't want to do this without you. So Lord, come by the power of your spirit. Fill me in such a way that you would help me to declare your word. God, guard me from any error, any false interpretation of this passage. And help me to declare your truth to your people. Your glory might be seen, known, and embraced. We need you in this, Lord. We open your word. We need you. We declare our dependence, our great dependence upon you. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to all of our dads. So good to see you here at church on Sunday morning, dads. Dads, can I just encourage you for just a second before we turn to Romans chapter 7? There's a lot of pressure today to be a dad. In fact, I can remember growing up, the church that I kind of grew up in, I remember on Father's Day, it just always felt like there was this like massive pressure put on dads. Like we had to have this special Father's Day sermon that just sort of highlighted all the things that dads do wrong. And it just felt like this like cloud, like dad just left discouraged and, and um, feeling down about being a dad. And can I, I just admit with you, we all stink at it. None of us are good at this. We don't meet the expectations that are put on us. We can always do better. We can always make a list of things that we don't do as well as we could. But take heart, Dad. Take heart. Like just the fact that you're here today, just the fact that you're pointing your kids to Jesus, that you're loving your wife, providing for your family, is a huge win in this culture. Huge win. So just keep going, Dad. I want to encourage you to keep going. Don't give uh, what your kids need, what your wife needs, more than anything from you is to keep going. Yes, we are not perfect. Our family doesn't need our perfection. Only Jesus is perfect. What they need from us is for us to stick with it, for us to not give up. By the power of the gospel, keep going in the strength that God provides. And so dads, rest in the glorious gospel of the grace of God this Father's Day. It is abundant and it is more than enough for our every need. Jesus is enough for you, no matter what you lack today. Well, everyone grab a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 7. 
The plan this morning is to complete our study of Romans chapters 1 through 7, and then we're going to take sort of the rest of the summer, the next couple months, just meditating on some various passages that your pastors have picked out as some of our favorites, or specifically passages that we think you need to hear God's own word on, that we need to all hear God's word on for, this, for these next few months. And then after this sort of summer break, about mid-August, we're going to start climbing the massive mountain of Romans chapter 8. And so be studying Romans 8 through 11 over these next few months as we dive in this fall to those epic chapters. But this morning, Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. So follow along as I read God's authoritative, inerrant, necessary, and sufficient word over us. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the inerrant word of our God. May God change us by his truth. During the Protestant Reformation, there was a Latin phrase that was embraced as something of how a Christian should view themselves in this world. Martin Luther and others would use the Latin phrase simul ustis et peccator. So if you're looking to be smart, looking to learn a Latin phrase, always sort of cool. You could get this tattooed on you or maybe a little something less than that. Write it on somewhere that you uh, want to see it. Simul ustus et peccator. Simul is where we get the English word simultaneously. It means at the same time. Ustus is the word for just or righteous. Et is simply a conjunction that means and. And that last word, peccator, is the word for Sinner. So the phrase says that we are righteous and sinner at the same time. 
simultaneously we are just or righteous and sinners. We're both simultaneously at the same time. God declares us right in His sight positionally, but we are still sinners practically. Even though we still sin, God has definitively counted us as righteous. Well, that's what Paul has been saying here in Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and he will say in chapter 8. This is how we view ourselves. This is how we as justified sinners deal with our indwelling or our continual remaining sin. Even though Paul says we have been forgiven of our sin, we have been justified in Christ, we still live with our sinful flesh each and every day. And facing the truth about this, the truth about our sinful flesh, helps us do battle against our sin by the power of God's Spirit. We do battle, we wage war against our sin by the power of the gospel, that is, by the power of our right standing with God through the work of Jesus Christ. Well, here in Romans chapter 7, Paul confesses that he still struggles with indwelling sin as a believer. Paul is voicing the tension between the already, God has already saved us, and the not yet, God is not done saving us. There's this tension we live in. God has saved us, but He's not done saving us. We live in the already and not yet. And Paul helps us see here the constant battle that we face as both justified and sinners. We are at the same time justified and yet still sinners. Now, this is not a great way to start a sermon But let me just say that this passage in Romans 7 has been up until this point the most difficult one for me to interpret in the whole book. Now listen, I reserve the right to say that again when we get to Romans chapter 11. We shall see. But as until this point, this one has given me sort of the most angst as I have sought to understand it rightly and correctly. Studying this passage and all the various interpretations of it have been very difficult. And even though I come to the conclusion that the majority interpretation of this passage, in fact, the interpretation that has the longest history behind it, I agree with that interpretation. There are still a lot of godly and well-respected scholars who are convinced there is a better way to read this passage. And they almost have me convinced. So I hold my passage of this, I hold my view of this passage very loosely, so loosely that I, in fact, want to go on the record saying that if ever I preach through the book of Romans again here at Miller Heights Baptist Church in the future, I may just have a different view. I may just preach it a different way based on the study and light that God gives me at the time. But I think I understand what Paul is saying here. I'm going to seek to help you understand it as well. The debate about this passage surrounds the question of whether Paul is writing as a mature believer who is struggling with his sin, or whether he's writing from the perspective of an unbeliever before salvation. Some scholars even say from the perspective of Adam or from the perspective of Israel under the law. So is Paul saying this is his current struggle as a believer, or is Paul just reflecting on the universal human condition apart from salvation 
in Jesus. Now, before I tell you some of why I think this passage is Paul describing his Christian experience, when Paul says, I, I think he means that he's currently writing this. Before I tell you some of why I see that, let me also say very clearly, I do not think the main point of this passage is dependent on which of those views you hold. So at the end of the day, it is not that important of an issue. It's not that significant of an issue. Yes, we want to be correct in our interpretation, and that's why this passage, I think, gives me so much struggle, because I want to be right. But either view you take on this, that should serve the main point of this passage. And so what is the main point? The main point, notice it, is that Paul is teaching that the law cannot deliver us from the power of sin. The law has no power to deliver us from sin. Only Jesus can deliver us from the power of our sin. God's law or our man-made laws and rules have no power to deliver us. Christian and non-Christian have only one hope of being declared right and being delivered, and that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the main point. The law doesn't have power to save us, and we ourselves don't have power to save ourselves. Only Jesus can deliver us. And so notice in verse 13, Paul restates what he's already said about the law being good. The law is good, he says. The law is spiritual. After all, the law is from God. And so we would anticipate it being good. So it wasn't the law that brought death, Paul says in verse 13. It was our sin. And the law inflamed by sin, showed sin to be utterly sinful, Paul says. Sinful beyond measure is how he says it in verse 13. So the law showed sin to be utterly sinful. The law showed sin to be totally sinful. So the law cannot deliver, Paul says. Well, then how can we be delivered from sin? If the law, God's law, can't deliver us, how can we be delivered? Well, look at verses 24 and 25 again. This is the main point. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, from this sin? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Paul says that if you look anywhere other than Jesus Christ to deliver you from your sin, you will be highly frustrated and you will find no deliverance. That's the burden of this passage. But when we consider the details of this passage, we have to make a decision as to whether Paul is describing himself as a believer struggling with sin or as an unbeliever. And I think Paul is describing his present experience with sin as a believer. Now, there are many arguments and reasons that I could just sort of list out for why I hold this view, but what I'd rather do is just walk through the text and highlight what I think Paul is saying here and just sort of interact with the other view. And then we'll conclude with some truths or implications that I think are true regardless of how you read this text. So perhaps the most obvious reason why I think this passage is Paul describing his present Christian experience is that he switches the tenses of verbs from using past tense to using present tense in verse 14. Do you see that? He switches from using past tense verbs to using present tense. And so the most natural reading of the grammar is that Paul is saying, this is who I am. This is who I am currently. 
So verse 14 restates the point of verse 12, that the law is spiritual, but then Paul contrasts himself with the law when he says, but I am of the flesh. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. That is, I am. I am currently of the flesh. This is Paul saying, this is who I am. I am of the flesh. Now, it is unwise to build an entire theology of who we are as Christians on a difficult passage like this. We are to interpret Scripture according to Scripture. We're to interpret what's not so clear in light of what is abundantly clear. And so to me, the most helpful way to understand what Paul is saying right here is to go to a few parallel passages. The parallel passage that I think is most clear on this is Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. So hold your place in Romans 7 and go over to the right, just a few books, to Galatians chapter 5. And let's look at verses 16 and 17. Here's the Apostle Paul, same author, and he says it this way. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, Galatians 5 is clear that it's referring to a Christian. There's no debate about Galatians 5, about whether this is a Christian or a non-Christian. This is about a Christian. So this helps us, I think, understand what Paul is saying when he says in Romans 7, 14, I am of the flesh. What does he mean? He means he still has a sin nature that wars against God's spirit inside of him. The flesh is that old self that does not love or submit to God. And all of us are born with this sinful flesh, this sinful nature that is opposed to God. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says we inherited this sinful nature from our forefather, Adam. So Paul says in Galatians 5, the desires of our sinful flesh are in a war with God's spirit inside of us as Christians. Our flesh is opposed to God's spirit in such a way that it keeps us from doing what we, by God's spirit, want to do, know we should do. So as Christians, we're in this lifelong and constant struggle, battle with our old nature. Even though we're made new when we trust in Christ, we're freed from slavery to sin, to our flesh, we're given the ability to obey God by God's Spirit, yet we are still at war with our indwelling sin. When Christ saved us, He dealt a mortal blow to our flesh. He gave us his spirit to dwell within us. However, we continue to battle that defeated sinful flesh throughout our Christian lives. We are at the same time justified and sinner. You see, becoming a Christian does not mean we cease to struggle with sin. We will still battle our sinful flesh throughout our lives. Our flesh, notice what Paul says in Galatians 5, 17, our flesh keeps us from doing what we know we should do. Our flesh keeps us from obeying God fully. That's what Galatians 5 says. So back to Romans 7, 14. Back to our text. Paul says, I am of the flesh. What does he mean? Well, he means I'm still battling this sinful nature. I am still fleshly. My flesh is still a part of me. Now, The last phrase of verse 14 
is the most difficult one for me to explain the way that I see this. Notice Paul says that he is sold under sin. This is one of the main reasons that those who hold this as an unbeliever say this is Paul reflecting on his pre-conversion life. Because how could a Christian say, I'm sold under sin? Now, we just saw Romans chapter 6 where Paul says that we have been set free from slavery to sin. We've been set free by the power of Christ. So how are we to understand sold under sin with what we've just heard in Romans chapter 6? Well, I think we can read sold under sin not to mean a steady state of captivity as if it's always always captive to it, but rather I think it's natural in light of Romans 6 to read this as Paul saying, He sometimes goes back to slavery to sin. He sometimes gives in to that old flesh. After all, wasn't that the point of Romans 6? Romans 6 says, this has happened to you. You've been set free from sin. Therefore, don't keep offering yourself to sin to obey it. In other words, even though we've been set free, that doesn't mean we don't often offer ourselves to sin and go back to our old ways. Because we have been set free, we should not give in to slavery, to sin. But Paul says it still does happen. And I think Paul goes on here to describe what he means by sold under sin in the next few verses. So let's allow Paul to tell us what it means that he is sold under sin. Verse 15, Paul says that he doesn't understand his own actions. He does not do what he wants But he does the very thing he hates. That's what it means to be sold under sin, to have this conflict inside of us where our desires are waging war against each other. Anyone resonate with what Paul says in verse 15? I do. That's exactly what Paul said in Galatians 5, 17, what happened to a believer. Our flesh keeps us from doing what we want to do. Well, notice in verse 16, Paul says, this means he agrees that the law is good. Since the law defines sin for us, when we do not do what we want, we agree that the law is telling the truth about our sin. And then look at verses 17 through 20 and how he describes what it means to be sold under sin. Verse 17, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul is certainly not saying here that he isn't responsible for his sin. He's not trying to blame sin on something outside of him. Rather, Paul is highlighting sin's power in his life. How powerful is sin in our lives? Sin is so powerful that it causes the Apostle Paul to do the very thing he hates to do. Listen, here's something you can write down. Indwelling sin wreaks havoc on our desires. Indwelling sin wreaks havoc on our desires. That's what Paul is saying. You can't trust your desires because sin still dwells in you. And sin wreaks havoc on those desires. Notice how he clarifies the statement in verse 18 that nothing good dwells in him with the phrase, that is, in my flesh. 
So he isn't saying he doesn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in him. He's saying there's nothing good about his sinful nature. And notice that the issue is ability at the end of verse 18. Paul has the desire to do right, but not the ability in himself to carry out those desires. You see, on our own, we cannot defeat our sinful flesh, which is why we need supernatural help, which is where Paul is heading in this whole passage, at the end of this passage, and into chapter 8, where he talks about us having the Spirit of God to enable us to make us do what is right and pleasing in God's sight. Now, another big reason that I see this as Paul the Christian, Paul struggling with his flesh as a Christian, is what Paul describes here is just not true of an unbeliever. Unbelievers do not struggle in this way with honoring God. Unbelievers don't have this internal battle of desires between doing what's pleasing to God and what is not. In fact, when Paul was an unbeliever, Paul said he was advancing beyond his peers. He says he was blameless in terms of the law. He had no conflict. Life was good for Paul before Jesus saved him. There was, there was no conflict of desires inside of him. And so this is a distinctively Christian struggle he's struggling with, the desire to please and honor and glorify God and yet not doing what we want to do, what we know we should do. Having the desire to do what is right is a gift from God. Being aware of sin is a gift from God. Struggling against sin, not just giving into it, is a gift from God. And I think verses 21 through 23 confirm and solidify this struggle. Notice the struggle. Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But in, but in the law, but for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war, the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says he delights in the law of God in his inner being. Where does he delight in the law of God at? In the deepest part of his heart. Again, I have trouble reading how that's true for an unbeliever. However, Paul also knows that his sinful flesh is waging war against those desires as a result of his salvation. He wants to obey God's law. He wants to love God's law and yet finds himself doing exactly what he hates. So Paul says he finds this to be a law. He finds this to be a principle. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now listen, friends, this is very important. We are never to interpret Scripture according to our own experience. Our experience is subjective and it is open to misunderstanding. We are always to conform our experience to Scripture, not the other way around. Let that be clear. However, it is not nothing when our experience in this life is confirmed and supported by Scripture. And this is a place I totally resonate with Paul. Friends, the more I desire to do what is right and holy and please God, I find sin right there pushing out those desires. 
My sinful flesh seems to be most active in my life when I'm desiring to follow Jesus and please him. Do you resonate with Paul here? Do you find yourself going back again and again to the things you hate? Is your zeal for God challenged by the idols of your flesh? We've all done this. We've all repented of our sin and told God that we are sorry for our sin and we will never do that thing again, only to find ourselves doing that very same thing again. This is so helpful to see and understand from God's Word. You, You can't repent hard enough or sincere enough to evict your flesh from your inner being. In fact, let me say something very brief to the youth who are about to go to youth camp tomorrow. And let this be a warning to us all. You see, at youth camp, you're going to have a great time. You're going to sense the powerful presence of God as God's word is proclaimed. As you disconnect yourself from normal life, God is going to be at work in your heart. However... What often happens is that we come back from a camp experience on this high for God. And we come back, we're ready to devote our whole life to Him. But coming back into real life often carries with it temptations, new temptations, to give in to your sinful flesh. Listen, God's going to come back from camp with you, but so is your flesh. Our sin lies close at hand. Just when you think you've turned the corner and are ready to obey God and are done with those sinful habits, here comes sin from the least likely place, the place you thought it would never come back again. Notice Paul's exasperation in verse 24. This is an exasperation. Wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death, from this sinful flesh. Friends, this isn't the cry of a defeated, captured, enslaved man. No, this is the cry of faith from a man who is so wearied by his sinful flesh that he is ready to wage war against it by God's Spirit. To me, this cry in Romans 7.24 is the same cry that Paul gives in Romans 8.23 where Paul says, We all groan inwardly as we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. This is what we do in the meantime. Between the comings of Christ, we groan inwardly. We cry out, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? This life in this sinful flesh is a life of groaning because the flesh is so contrary to the desires of the Spirit inside of us. And so we long for the day when Jesus returns and He will finally destroy our flesh forever. Now again, the main point of this passage is that the law is powerless to deliver us and our own efforts are powerless to deliver us. There is only one deliverer. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so to me, this passage culminates in this cry of verse 25. The tone of this passage is not resignment to sin or captivity to sin or discouragement about sin, but rather it's one of victory tempered by realism about the present. Tempered with a lack of hypocrisy. Tempered with humility. 
Thanks be to God who's redeemed me and who is still in the process of delivering me. Now, I want to say a lot more about these verses by way of exposition of the text, but I want to conclude also with just two truths or implications that I want to commit to you are true regardless of how you view this passage. Even if you see this passage very differently than I've just described, I hope these truths you can resonate with and say amen to. Even though I'm going to ground them in this text, they're true, I think, regardless of how you view this passage. And here's the first one. Number one, Christians still struggle with sin. Christians still struggle with sin. And I hope your initial response to this truth is, duh, tell me something I don't know. But I want to press a little deeper. And I pray that this is pastorally helpful and encouraging to you this morning. According to the way I interpret this text, and in harmony with many other passages, including Galatians 5, here we see the great Apostle Paul with an ongoing struggle with his flesh. Listen, Paul was not perfect, and he was well aware that he had not arrived at complete holiness. In Philippians 3, he would say, not that I've already obtained it, but I press on. The Apostle Paul had this deep awareness of his sinful flesh that was still active in him, that he knew this was going to be a lifelong battle. And friends, if Paul could not deliver himself from this lifelong struggle against his sinful flesh, then I submit to you that neither can any of us. And so this is a pastoral word of encouragement to you. If you resonate with Paul in this passage, if you find yourself conflicted like Paul was, can I submit to you, it is a good thing that you struggle with sin. It would be a problem if you just gave in to your sin without struggle. The most dangerous place to be is to have no struggle. No struggle means no progress. No struggle ever means no spirit of God inside of you. If you don't resonate with this, then I would encourage you to check and see if you are really trusting in Jesus. If you've really repented of your sins and had them paid for by his blood, because that means you're going to struggle. And it's a good thing to struggle with sin. Now, this truth does not give us an excuse to sin. That's what Paul dealt with in Romans chapter 6, right? We aren't to throw our hands up and say, well, why try it all if this is just going to be a lifelong struggle? No, a, a true Christian never says that. A true believer wages war on that flesh. But I think this truth does prepare us for the lifelong battle. This truth does give us a realism of what we face day in and day out. I think this truth helps us to not be overly discouraged as we find ourselves doing exactly what we don't want to do. Oftentimes, young believers or new believers, they get excited about God and then they find a big temptation and they give into it and they are so discouraged. They thought that they would be done with that. I think this truth can help give some encouragement that this is what we're going to face. This is the battle. The normal Christian experience that avoids hypocrisy, because that's what we want to, we want to avoid the, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong. We're not fine. We're not. 
Here's the normal Christian experience that avoids hypocrisy. It's this. Number one, I love the law of God. I want to do what's good. Number two, I hate what I just did. I can't believe I'm still struggling with this after all these years. And number three, thanks be to God for the power of God in the gospel. I love the law of God. I want to do what's right. And I hate what I just did. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Loathing our sin nature, wretched man that I am, is the best place to be to cry out verse 25, thanks be to God. If you hate where you're at in your sin, that is a great place to be. It's a great place to be. The struggle is evidence that you are filled with the Spirit of God. Another way to communicate this same truth would be to say this. Sanctification is hard. Sanctification is hard, friends. No one ever promised sanctification would be easy in this life. It is incredibly hard. Sanctification, the growing in the grace and knowledge of God, becoming more and more like Jesus, is not a smooth, straight line upward. Oh, sometimes it is up, and sometimes it is down. It is often two steps forward and three steps back. And two steps forward and one step back. Years ago, I saw this really simple but helpful video that was just labeled sanctification. So all the video was of sanctification. And the video was security footage showing an escalator and an older gentleman needing to go up that escalator. But evidently, this man had either never been on an escalator before or was a little too wobbly to be going up an escalator by himself. And so when he stepped on the escalator, all kinds of chaos ensued. Instead of being calmly carried to the top like you're supposed to be on an escalator, this man stumbled and fell onto the escalator. He fell, in fact, backwards so that his feet were in the air and his head rammed into the side of the escalator. And instead of just being driven up the escalator, he actually fell down several steps as he was struggling to get up. And the short video ends with the escalator just continuing to carry this man who is still on his back up to the top. That is what sanctification looks like. It is not pretty and it is not peaceful. We will stumble and we will hit our head and we will often fall down a few steps. We struggle and we struggle to get up and yet by the grace of God, somehow we still arrive at our destination. Friends, there was a time in my life, in my arrogance, when I imagined that I was standing tall and proud on the sanctification escalator. I imagine that not just that I was being carried up the sanctification escalator as I stood there, but I imagine somehow that I was running up the escalator like it was a set of stairs. But I've come to embrace the fact that sanctification is messy and it is painful and it is impossible in our own strength. Friends, if you think the Christian life is all peace and no struggle, you're going to be very surprised and you're going to give up. But if you expect the struggle, if you know the struggle's there, you're prepared for the battle beforehand. By the way, friends, understanding this truth about still struggling with sin, about sanctification being hard, it not only helps prepare us for the battle, but it also helps us to be patient with each other 
who are also struggling as well. Friends, none of us have arrived. Who are we to look at someone and say, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you're still way down there on the bottom of the escalator. Friends, all of us are a work in progress, and we've got to come alongside one another to help each other. We are simultaneously justified and sinner. I love this John Newton quote. I think it's a good summary of this passage. Here's what Newton said. Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I one day will be. But still, I am not what I used to be. I once used to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think that's a pretty good summary of Romans chapter 7. Well, here's the second and the final and the most important implication of this passage. Number two, our only hope is Jesus the deliverer. Our only hope is Jesus, the deliverer. Church family, sin is powerful and it is impossible to defeat in our own strength. But Jesus, our Savior, our deliverer is all powerful and nothing will stand in his way of delivering his people from evil. Jesus has already crushed sin's penalty by taking it upon himself on the cross. And Jesus is in the process of freeing us from sin's power through sanctification. And when Jesus returns, he will finally and fully rid his people of their sinful flesh for good. And all of us say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for that day. So friends, what sinful habits or addiction Do you keep going back to again and again? Does Jesus not have power enough to deliver you? Because there is nothing that can withstand the cleansing power of King Jesus. And so in the midst of this struggle, we cry with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And oh, I wish we had another two or three hours here because what we would do next is we would go into Romans 8 And we would see the power of Jesus for his people by the power of the Spirit. In fact, because it's going to be a couple months before we get to Romans 8, we just have to take time to read at least these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. And so just follow along as I conclude this sermon. Notice how Paul transitions to the power of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life 
because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Oh, friends, Jesus is our only hope. Let's run to him now. He promises to hold us fast. When we fear our faith will fail, he will hold us fast. Father, thank you that you're a good, good father. Thank you that you're a great father who takes care of and protects your own. We love you. We thank you for first loving us. We thank you for the power of your spirit that you have put within us to wage war against our sinful flesh. Oh God, I pray that every believer in here is encouraged by the battle that you have them in, that you will win this war and you will give them the power to defeat their flesh because Jesus has defeated it for us. God, I pray for those in this room who are not trusting you. I pray they would see they lack this inner struggle and that they would want Christ as beautiful and lovely in their life. Oh God, thank you for your word. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is true. Help us to believe your promises. We pray you help us in Jesus' great name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. He will hold me fast.